Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller like me, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Um, today, of course, we are absolutely delighted to have Michelle Dean in conversation with Karina Chapano. Um, Karina Chapano uh, writes for the New York Times Magazine. She's a film critic at um, LA Times, a book critic at Entertainment Weekly, and also she has written one of my favorite books of the year, a consistent staff favorite. Um, and uh, she's a local, so I got to have a total fangirl moment um, where uh, her family was picking up a special order under her name. And I got to say, you mean like the author? Right in front of her daughter? And you should have seen how proud that made her. Oh, it's you. Do you remember when that happened? And then you showed me your name in the front of the book. It was like really charming all around. I'm glad to see you here. Um, I was impressed. The book is dedicated to her. The book is very good. Um, Michelle Dean, of course, we are delighted to welcome back. She's also a local and supports the bookstore very nicely with other authors as well. Um, her work is uh, represented in all the heavy hitters, Harper's, New York Magazine, New Republic, New Yorker, The Nation, but this is her first book, Sharp, The Women Who Made an Art Out of Having an Opinion. And um, these are women critics uh, who were not doing it for the likes, you know? These are combative oppositional thinkers who shaped our culture. And uh, there's something valuable in knowing that pervasive sexism notwithstanding, there are ways to cut through it with some sharp elbows, you know? Uh, the book has gotten wonderfully well-reviewed. Um, it has been called fascinating, exquisite, rigorous, compassionate, ferociously good, brisk, entertaining, well-researched, elegant, astute, incisive, richly detailed, distinct, vital, refreshingly clear-sighted, and wonderful. Let's please give Michelle Dean a warm round of applause. for coming up and not going to Coachella instead. <laughs> so um, I'm so happy to be here because I love this book so much. I totally devoured it. And you should too. Because it's really an amazingly well-researched book. And it's so, um, it just gives a picture, I think it paints a picture that we haven't seen at all before. And then what, once it comes into view, you're like, why haven't we seen this picture before? <laughs> Um, so, for those of you who don't know, Sharp explores the life and work of ten very different 20th century women um, whose work had a deep impact on the culture. Um, there are Dorothy Parker, Rebecca West, Hannah Arendt, Mary McCarthy, Susan Sontag, Pauline Kael, Joan Didion, Nora Ephron, Renata Adler, and Janet Malcolm. There's a ton of research <laughs> that went into this. Um, who didn't all or always consider themselves feminists, but whose careers were largely shaped in one way or another by the sexism of their era. Um, and it also explores some of their relationships to each other and to other writers like Zora Neale Hurston, who's, who, who are sort of kept from having a more prominent role because of racism. Um, so the first thing I wanted to ask you, one of the first things that really jumped out at me, and Michelle's going to read a little bit um, right after this, but I wanted to um, talk about how, for me, uh, the thing, one of the things that most jumped out of me was that their humor um, was largely talked about as, or it was a way um, to dismiss them as being not that serious. Like they were criticized for having this sort of sardonic edge, this fighting humor, and this wit, which was sort of seen as kind of destructive and dangerous. Um, so, and, and you write that you think that we should actually take more notice of attempts to intervene with a humorous edge, not less, and that it can signal an outsiderness uh, that is a real value to a critic, I think. Um, anyway, it made me think that women are the real, the true counterculture. <laughs> um, maybe. Uh, I think um, what, what I'm trying to get at there a little bit is, is so it's sharp, the title of the book. You know, the compliment that was often paid to these women in their lives, um, to call them sharp and say, you know, they, they were insightful in some ways, that has this sort of tailwind of they were also destructive or mean or wounding in some way. Um, and that quality was, yeah, it was really interesting to me. Um, and often it was because they did typically use humor or ironic distance, if not outright, like wit, mm -hmm. um, to comment on the various things that they were talking about. So, 
So for example, you know, um, somebody like Dorothy Parker often gets just basically called like a humorist um, who didn't have anything particular to say about her time or her day um, and stereotyped that way. Um, and that wasn't really exactly true, although it was funny because later in her life she sort of came to adopt that critique herself um, and, and started talking about how, how useless all of the activities she internalized She internalized it, yeah. And it was really, it, it's really kind of sad. And actually that's a, the passage that I, I just mm -hmm. want to read really briefly, and I promise it'll be short because I don't believe in long readings, but... Um, uh, <clears throat> Uh, you know, later in, in life, Parker started out being a wit in Vanity Fair, uh, actually both before Vanity Fair and then moved on, um, and, and eventually came to The New Yorker, but, um, but as her star sort of grew, she became more and more disenchanted with what she had been doing, um, and she started to sort of lash out at herself, um, and she also got involved in a lot of social and political causes. Um, including, among others, an early version of the WGA. Um, she, she was a founding member of the Screenwriters Guild. But um, she, as she became more and more involved with communism and with other, with other um, you know, political activities in the United States, she started to give more and more talks about how upset she was. Um, Parker, and, and this I write a little bit about in the book, um, Parker often used the seriousness of the social and political causes she now involved herself with to club her fire activities. She did so, for example, in an article she wrote for the New Masses, the Journal of the American Communist Party, in 1937. I'm not a member of any political party. The only group I've ever been affiliated with is that not especially brave little band that hid its nakedness of heart and mind under the out-of-date garment of a sense of humor. I heard someone say, and so I said, too, that ridicule is the most effective weapon. I don't suppose I ever really believed it, but it was easy and comforting, and so I said it. Well, now I know. I know that there are things that have never been funny and never will be. And I know that ridicule may be a shield, but it is not a weapon. As the Depression waned and the country moved towards World War II, her self-flagellation intensified. In 1939, Parker gave a speech to the American Writers Congress, an openly communist group, in which she elaborated on her disillusionment. I don't think any word in the language has a harder connotation than sophisticate, which ranks with that along with socialite. The real dictionary meaning is none too attractive. The verb means to mislead, to deprive of simplicity, make artificial, to tamper with, for purpose of argument, to adulterate. You'd think that was enough as far as it goes, but it has gone farther. Now it appears to mean to be an intellectual and emotional isolationist, to sneer at those who do the rest for their fellows and for their world, to always look down and never around, and to laugh at only those things that are not funny. Um, and there was some truth in this. Sophistication had its foibles and obsession with surfaces, a casual quality. And yet the things Parker said and wrote turned out to be anything but ephemeral. People still send each other a resume. They quote Parker's criticisms of A. Milne and Catherine Hepburn. They remember that she said in 1957, long after she thought she'd been wrung out as a writer, as for me, I'd like to have money, and I'd like to be a good writer. These two can come together, and I hope they will, but if that's too adorable, I'd rather have the money. <laughs> She is the best. Um, yeah, it's interesting the way she says, you know, the, the, I, that really struck me. I hadn't heard that, come across that line about laughing at only things that aren't funny. And I think that it, it, it is, she's describing something real, but she's definitely not describing herself. Yeah, um, it, she's describing actually the caricature that people took from her uh -huh. um, and from the Algonquin round table of, of just being funny all the time uh -huh. um, and having no commitment underneath it. Although it's very funny because the early Vanity Fair is actually there. We, we don't know this now, the, the Vanity Fair of our time, although it's changing, it has a new, it has a new regime, but the mm -hmm. Vanity Fair of our time, I can see a staff writer in the audience, that's why I have to say that. But, um, uh, the Vanity Fair of our time has been sort of a celebration of the rich, an uncritical celebration of the rich. But when, when it was started, or it was really a reboot of an earlier version of Vanity Fair, but when the Vanity Fair happened that made Vanity Fair famous, which Parker was on the staff of, it mostly made fun of rich people, 24-7, right? Um, you know, there was not, there was not quite as much, um, it's acceptance of their, of their, you know, their parties and all that kind of stuff. But Parker had that problem from the beginning. She just couldn't sort of get along with people. Um, and I think it's kind of funny that eventually she turned it on, yeah, she oh, turned it on herself. But it's funny because, but this is a problem shared by all the critics in your book. She, I think part of it was that she didn't have a context to be understood in, yeah. right? And I think that you've done this a little bit. You've contextualized them it's so, as a group, you, you know, a lot of, um, you start to see a lot of connections between them, even though they're completely different, yeah. and it starts to create a sort of alternate uh, canon, which is really fascinating. <laughs> um, Thank you, Brina. So I, um, 
like for instance, I was thinking, um, just just grouping them together, you know, the 20th century was so male dominated that once you start um, assembling this group, another picture emerges. And you wrote, the longer I looked at the work these women laid out before me, the more puzzling I found it that anyone could look at the literary scene and at the literary scene and intellectual history and not center women in it. Mm-hmm. Can yeah. you say a little bit? Because I think that's really, I mean, I did break that. Yes. Gotcha. Yeah. But it's a fascinating thing because I think that, um, like you said, you know, these are the critics that we actually still are extremely familiar with. I mean, we still read them. We know their names, maybe a lot more than, than the men writing at that time. It's true. Um, I think, you know, what sort of happened, and it happened particularly with the New York intellectuals in the mid-century, is there was this sort of fetish, fetishization of, like, a kind of New York scene of people who talked about ideas and criticized things and were critics at, stop critics of publications, um, that sort of got into the business of, of picking out its stars. And when it picked out its stars, it, it didn't pick out Mary McCarthy. It picked out, like, Edmund Wilson, who's actually a little bit older than the New York intellectuals would still. Um, or Lionel Trilling, or many of the, the, the men writing of the day. But yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you can never, so w- when you do a book like this, when I, when I did the research for it, I read a lot of old book reviews, like a lot. Um, and you end up with a pretty big sense of humor about um, whether book reviewers at the time or people at the time are able to see what's most gonna last <laughs> um, in the writing. Because like in, in general, that's not the case. I mean, um, and it wasn't the case here, too, because as we got away from the era of the New York, New York intellectuals, some of these people began to be read a little bit less. Um, certainly popularly, I don't think that anybody reads Lionel Trilling these days, which, which would get me shot if I said that in New York. But, um, but it's, it's definitely the case that uh, on a popular level, more people know about the group um, than know about most of, most of the male work. And so, yeah, it's... it's Interesting, and I think it has a lot to do with the tone in which the the, the women's work had to had to sort of because it did without elaborating over much on the, the sharp metaphor, which I'm often in danger of doing. It did have to like cut through like a certain amount of sexism in order to be heard in the first place, and I think that made it somewhat more memorable in terms of like phrasing and stuff later on. And even maybe the rigor of their um, their perspectives, like it made me think like, well, it, it makes sense now. I mean, in retrospect, it makes sense because like. I think a, a female critic, especially as, as sort of, you know, few and far between as they were, um, they're sort of forged by fire in a way that, like, female <laughs> critics are, you know, the skids are greased and, you know, and I think that there's something about having to, like, uh, to self-create in this antagonistic culture that, that does, did something good for their writing, you know? Yes, it sharpens it. Yeah. sharpens it. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, but, uh, but so that suggested looking into Mary McCarthy, who was a writer who I honestly had never encountered as Canadian undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and yeah, and I tend to be a completist as a reader. Like once I get into one writer, I then need to read everything they have ever written mm-hmm. um, in order to feel like I got my money's worth out of the first book that I read. Um, and so you can see how that quickly turns into a project like this, yeah. right? Um, because um, once I started reading into Dorothy Parker's background and, um, and into, into Mary's as well, you know, they started to touch on a bunch of other different writers who ended up mm-hmm. in the book. Right, there's all these tenuous connections. Well, some of them are not so tenuous, but sometimes they're just there's a there's an interesting linkage. Yeah. Um, sometimes extremely friendly. Sometimes yeah. very. Sometimes very somewhat rivalrous, yeah. or or at least um, standoffish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there are a lot of linkages here, and even where people didn't know each other personally, which is actually relatively rare here. Like that, most of these women knew each other personally, but. Um, but even when they, where they didn't know each other personally, their work often tended to be defined in the terms given by these predecessors. Like all of them found themselves called the new Dorothy Parker at some point. Someone said, "I hear you're the new me." Yeah. Oh, that's Mary. Well, so that's a that's a possibly apocryphal story about Mary McCarthy and Susan Sontag. And then Susan said she heard it too. Did she ever experience that? She does not remember it. <laughs> um, you know, um, she did say that, and she and Mary had like sort of a, a standoffish and antagonistic relationship that was also, I think, not, it was difficult, but not, it was not like the cat fight that I think people want to, want to have, yeah. uh, want them to have. But yeah, it was, it was interesting, because um, it's interesting that that story sort of cropped up and yet it doesn't seem to have happened. And then it tells us a lot about what the uh, contemporary attitudes were to the like one or two female critics who were in the room at these parties, mm-hmm. right? It was like, well, if they showed up, it must be like a rivalry between mm-hmm. them to be the only one in the room. Um, and I do think there were some elements of rivalry sometimes, but um, but it wasn't, I don't know, it wasn't a cat fight. Right, and the friend, like the friendship between Hannah Arendt and um, mm-hmm. Mary McCarthy is really interesting. It's very close, it's yeah. very, close very long. Uh, very collaborative. Yeah. Yeah, and Mary is also often stereotyped as like how sort of intellectual inferior. But the truth is we wouldn't have most of Arendt's work as clearly as we do if Mary hadn't come in and like basically rewritten the English. Um, because like uh, the ger- Germanic... Uh, <laughs> what did she say? She would say... Would she would call it Englishing. Yeah, yeah Englishing. She, she had other people who English too, but Mary did most of it. Um, and at the end of her life too, like a lot of um, Arendt's last works we only have because Mary put them together after she died like stopped her own work for a couple of years while she did that. They were devoted to each other. Um, and they, they found a lot of sort of um, protection in their in their friendship with each other because both of them, at, 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 in fact, at the same time, in a weird coincidence, came up for like a lot of um, backbiting in their, in their small community of intellectuals because the group in Eichmann and Jerusalem both came out at the same time and both of those caused small conflagrations. Mm-hmm. Um, because uh, in, for different reasons, each book was, was thought of as like not worthy of the, of the woman who wrote it. Um, and when that happened to them both in roughly the same period of time, they were able to be like a comfort to each mm-hmm. other. It's yeah. interesting. Um, I, I loved how you talked about how part of what motivated you was um, if you were a young woman of a certain kind of ambition uh, in knowing that pervasive sexism notwithstanding, there are ways to cut through it. Um, and that having this this collection together is actually a kind is is a, a real <laughs> use to somebody, um, and I definitely think that that's true. I mean, I I think that as I encountered these writers when I was younger, for one thing, it was always by accident. I really don't think I ever read any of them in uh, inside of a formal like yeah. setting in a class. I don't think I ever did, and you know, there was a sort of an ad hoc kind of discovery. Um, so, so there's something about uh, putting it together and sort of seeing how this, you know, their ambition kind of mirrored each other. And that's really, I think, really um, inspiring. Thank you. Um, well, early on when I when I was thinking about the book, um, I told this uh, someone in the book industry the title, and she said to me. Um, you know, that sounds like it's going to be a great book for smart nieces. Um, which on the other hand, which on the one hand sounds like it's kind of trivializing, and on the other hand I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm just running with that. Um, 
in, in that um, I, I think I wanted it to be for, because, so I came to writing very late um, for a lot of reasons, including just general aimlessness as a 20-something, um, and um, when I sort of arrived and started writing criticism, I didn't realize that there was this whole history behind it, right? Um, you know, I didn't really know very much about the New York intellectuals, to be perfectly honest with you. Um, and I felt like I had a lot of catching up to do, and to a certain extent, this, this book is like, is a book for that person, right, who arrives and who's really interested in this idea that you can spend your life arguing about culture and ideas, which you can still sort of do, um, in spite of the internet. Um, for less <laughs> but, money, <laughs> Yeah, for less money, but, well, actually, I didn't make much, much money at the time, yeah. either. Um, almost all of them had to, like, leave New York because they couldn't afford the rent, which is actually a nice thing to know about the mid-century. Because our picture, in retrospect, is that they all made this enormous living on, on, on their, on the urban, in fact. No, like, you know, even Dorothy Parker, who was a big bestseller in her own time, had to leave. Like, she had, she, she had to come to... Because she came to LA. Yeah, she sold out and came to Los Angeles. <laughs> yeah. um, and, and became a screenwriter. Um, but, um, but yeah, it, uh, why is I saying this? Right, yeah, like, to, to, to a certain extent, I think it would be good to know because, uh, this history, because, you know, it's, it's a limited history and there's, there's a lot of women writers who are not in the book who would also have their own tales about, you know, sexism, but, um, but this, the nice thing about the, the women in the book is that, um, in terms of this instructive capacity, is that they all had this like big fight in the public sphere at one point or another um, in their careers where like something they published angered everybody. Um, and that, knowing that you survived that anyway, I think, mm -hmm. is like, I, I hate this word now because it's been overused, but like kind of embarrassing. Mm -hmm. yeah. Well, the other thing I love about it is how you reclaim their stories from that point of view somehow. So it's like, like for instance, I was telling you earlier, the first one of the first biographies I ever read of a writer that I loved was was Marion um, Meade's biography of um, Dorothy Parker, and I was like, I am never reading another biography again. <laughs> like never. Like it just it was so because you know the whole narrative is like. She was a huge drunk, she died penniless and deprived, everything sucked, you know, and you're like, I don't really want to know that. Like that, you know, so it's really nice the way that you kind of reclaim and reframe it because there, I think for, especially for women like this, there's such a drive in the culture to like tell that story. Yeah. And you were saying like, you know, you know, that maybe that Parker's story isn't really as tragic as we yeah. you're popularly accustomed to seeing Yeah, it's not clear she was as big of a drunk, which is, by the way, like, propaganda spelt was provided by Lillian Hellman. Who, uh -huh. who just, like, um, yeah, well, because so Lillian Hellman was very angry um, with Dorothy Parker because she felt that she had spent, like, the end of Dottie's life, like, taking care of her um, and giving her money and stuff, and then when Dottie died um, and her will was read, it turned out, like, Lillian Hellman, if you don't know this whole history, she just, she just, Dashiell Hammett was like her husband and left her um, like his, the literary rights to his estate. And the reason that we still read Hammett in, in part is because she definitely managed that estate and made him into a celebrity writer in a way he almost hadn't been when he was alive. Um, and so she considered her, Helen considered herself like really good at this. And she thought she was going to get the Parker estate, um, and instead Parker left it to the NAACP. Um, and so Lillian, Lillian Helen was really mad, and as she wrote, you know, memoirs and stuff, she kept talking about how drunk Dottie was. And, and, and eventually that seems to have taken over. But, you know, in the last few years of her life, she wasn't writing, like, like great copy for Esquire, but it was pretty good. Like, she was a book critic for Esquire, and she, and she was very pathetic, but not as bad as it seems people think it was. So, but, you know, there is there is something in here. I think it's because, and I don't want to totally pick on Marianne Mead, who, without whom we would know very little about Parker because Parker didn't leave any papers behind, which Lillian Hellman perhaps had something to do with, but um, uh, we, we don't know for sure. Um, well, she was one of the first people in that hotel room after she died. She just declutter. <laughs> Yeah, um, or maybe she wasn't a hoarder, right? Like, um, but um, but yeah, you know, Mary and me did like very important work in putting together the story of the life. But she tended to read it as in the way that people initially read it, because um, Parker had such a, like a cheerful disposition that it seemed like all of the biographers came, who came along were like, well, it's a revelation that it wasn't like one twenty four seven happy. Right, yeah. yeah. 
Um, and so, like, I, I'm just saying, like, it, you can still evolve the understanding a little bit. Um, because, for example, like, Parker didn't drink until after she married her first husband, by which time she was already well into, like, her writing career. Um, so, you know, it's not it's not quite the, the sodden mess that it sometimes gets stereotyped as yeah. now. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know, there is there's a tendency to make these things a little bit too tragic or emo, yeah. as my friend Laura would say. Yeah. yeah. I was wondering um, how you went about choosing them and why this is maybe, like, you know, maybe this question could just go on to too many examples, but why did you not include Virginia Woolf? <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Uh, recently our reviewer was like, why didn't you include Roxanne Gay? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I asked about Will because you yeah. know one of the first things that she wrote, what, like some, you know, one of the yeah, summer things. Yeah, Well, not just that, but the the essay that she wrote, Professions for Women, yeah. it was about how writing, you know, living by your wits was literally one of the few professions available to educated women, and how it particularly criticism was something that women had to cut through because there was such a prohibition against. Um, being critical, especially of male authors. So, like, she had yeah. such, you know, I feel like she's sort of the grandmother here. We forget this about Wolf now, but in fact, the reason she's so famous now is that she was the subject of a feminist scholarship revival in the 70s. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, she's well known in her own time, but she wrote mostly for other literary people and other literary publications. Right? So, in fact, Rebecca West, who is in the book, is, was more famous than her mm -hmm. at the time. And it, to a certain extent, like I was talking about, you know, the, the need for like a, a public clash or, or to be writing directly for the public was one thing that I used as a criterion to narrow this down. Because obviously the book doesn't cover every single woman writing criticism in the 20th century or I would have died. Mm -hmm. It would have been like a Henry Darger book. <laughs> right? Um, of, of just literally everything you Covering every yeah, story. Yeah, exactly. Um, unfortunately, because the, the, the public tends to elevate, because sometimes people have misread this as me saying these are the 10 best opinion writers or something of the 20th century or the 10 best critics. Not even sure I really think that. Um, I, I only think that they all had this sort of like public profile as exceptional women that ended up being a double-edged sword for them. Mm -hmm. um, and that that was less true for, for writers who So Elizabeth Hardwick is the one on this side of the Atlantic I often get asked about. Like why? She is in the book. And in fact, both was in the book Lansingly as well. Um, because both of those people who are now much read in our own time were not as widely read in, in that time. So, so again, Rebecca, Rebecca was actually the more famous one, weirdly mm -hmm. enough. Um, oh, right, like Virginia writes about Rebecca in a room one's own, and like, yeah. who was it? It was like that Arab feminist who yeah. the book across the room. Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, she thought, she thought like Rebecca's pretty vulgar. Uh -huh. um, well, she was. Actually, some of the things I love about her is just like kind of a mess. Um, but And in fact, when you read her writing, the writing is a mess. It's a glorious mess, but it's a mess. Um, and um, and yeah, so these were these were just like qualities. Virginia Woolf was was actually like quite prim <laughs> um, in her in her personal manner. I mean, she had come from an upper middle class family, which is not true of Rebecca West. Mm -hmm. um, maybe by class, but certainly not by money. Mm -hmm. But yeah, so that's why that's why like no Wolf necessarily. She just didn't get into like as big a public fight right. over anything that she had written. Right. Um, although it's funny, I, I don't know, there is there is also, it seems to me, some revisionism to be done at Wolf, not of like Hermione Lee Wolf, but like the, the internet Wolf right now is like, well she wrote A Room of One's Own and that was Triumph, and actually if you read Virginia Woolf's diary, she thought that piece sucked. <laughs> she talks about it, it, it like extensively, like, ah, oh, I just like finally gave in and it's terrible and I don't think it's any good, which is interesting because Adrian Rich later, it was another person who could have been in this book and wasn't. Um, Adrienne Rich um, later like observed, like, yeah, it's funny, when I read this, I feel like I can see a woman like kind of controlling herself and not writing the things mm -hmm. she really wants mm -hmm. to write. It's interesting. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Her whole thing about holding herself back is, yeah. I mean, she's sort of always struggling, I think, was struggling with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but one, one thing that I found interesting was how many of them were, in one way or another, Ex of the women in your book are, are either exiled or dispossessed or have a dead father or a father who lost all his money. You know, a lot of sort of like then having to go out and like uh, figure it out and live by their, literally by their wits and, um, and, and sort of participate in this one profession that was open. Yeah, nearly all of them just didn't have the option of being, I don't know, like a genteel woman um, who just went and got married. Um, you know, um, 
all of them for one reason or another. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of different, like Dorothy Parker's dad did die. In fact, she dropped out of school in what we think might have been an attempt to take care of him, although we don't know exactly, because she's never really talked about what exactly happened there. Um, you know, she, she didn't actually graduate from high school. Um, <clears throat> and, uh, and yeah, and like Hannah Arendt's father died when she was very small. Um, Mary McCarthy's father also died when she was very small. Um, there's just something about, yeah, like they, they, they all lived in a time where, where their lives would have been made substantially easier by that. Um, and then, yeah, there's the exile thing. I think what it does is it sort of cements in you a sense of not being like everybody else, right? Like the book is like, Mm -hmm. so, uh, the book is also dedicated to people who are always told they're too smart for their own good, mm -hmm. right? And just in some way not, not conforming to the narrative that everybody else has of their life, which means that you're always writing it yourself and you're always trying to figure out, you know, some other way to be. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, um, and it makes you an outsider, yeah, um, in a way. Which is such a great uh, thing for a critic to... Yeah, you know, well, critics are outsiders. Like, yeah. it, it's not like novelists love us for writing about them. <laughs> um, yeah, critics are generally outsiders, or at least have some significant quality of detachment that allows them to stand outside and like, look at the whole and be like, okay, here's what I think of it. Yeah, well, but again, like I think that the grouping of them sort of shows you that this these threads run through them in mm -hmm. a way that then really shifts your understanding of these like lone figures who like I think have usually been talked about as like well how did this person happen you know mm -hmm. it's like well actually you know they they have surprisingly a lot in common they do I mean it's funny Pauline Kael and Joan Didion are often said to have hated each other um, but they they mostly came to some of the same conclusions about things, my favorite being Manhattan, actually, like um, Woody Allen's Manhattan. They were the two people who, many years ago, wrote, you know, it's really weird that he's dating a 16-year-old, yeah. right? Like, <laughs> like um, only Woody Allen could sell that. Um, yes. And yeah, I think it's, it's interesting that they, that they were people who noticed that before most people did, yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's, uh, I don't even remember what I was saying. Well, the other thing is that a lot of them, um, they didn't all identify as feminists. They That's all right. had kind of different relationships to that, to, to feminism. Yeah. I mean, I actually made a decision to that I was not going to have any any women in the book, in, in this particular book anyway, that were strongly aligned with political movements. Mm -hmm. I mean, in the end, Dorothy Parker ended up being, and she's pretty much the only exception. Uh, Rebecca West spent some time being a suffragette, and it didn't really work out, um, because she found them too um, sexually prim. Mm -hmm. um, but um, but they, she was good, she was close to um, the Pankhursts or something? Or yeah, she was close to the Pankhursts, but then they, they were like very, they didn't like to talk about sex, and that was like basically the only thing she liked to talk about. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> Uh, I mean, well, yeah, so, so she just had to sort of drop out, um, and, uh, and well, that's why she went to the New Free Woman, which mm -hmm. we were talking about earlier, yeah. or well, it was the Free Woman first, and then the New Free Woman, but, um, but yeah, she, um, yeah, they mostly just, again, because of this quality of outsiderness and not feeling like everyone else, uh, the, the polite way I try to put it in the book is they were oppositional spirits. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, and I don't mean by that that they were contrarians in the typical way, and that usually there was some philosophical consistency to like the, the position that they were staking out to themselves, uh, for, for themselves. But, um, but yeah, they usually, they, they didn't tend to work well, they would play well in groups. Um, and it, they were allergic to them on one level or another. And one of the ways that manifested is in hostility to what I say, or what I try to distinguish is movement feminism, meaning, you know, they, they it, it, in various ways, except for Hannah Arendt, and I even recently got a qualification on this, almost all of them at one point said, okay, I've sometimes written critically about feminism, but actually I can see that it had some effect on my life. Um, and, and, or, and I certainly believe in gender structures. Hannah Arendt was pretty like hardline about it, although recently I found this thing uh, online, uh, a meme, mm -hmm. a Hannah Arendt meme. Um, and it is her giving this interview she gives at the end of her life um, to German television. And I, I'd seen this before and it hadn't clicked for some reason until it was memed, which maybe says something about the way the internet is reorganizing my brain that I don't like. <laughs> but, um, but, uh, but she says, like, you know, you ask me, like, what influence I've had. 
And you know, I'm sorry to speak ironically, but I, I think that's a very masculine question. And she said, you know, men are always looking to influence. I'm seeking to understand. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's interesting. She also knew there were gender, like, yeah. like uh, gendered expectations. Um, uh, it just seems like for her, other other issues uh, took the forefront. And I think it, again, it's always a, it's a matter of context, right? Like having been in Jewish environment Germany and yeah. leaving, like. That was more. Yeah. yeah, weirdly, she wasn't fond of social movements after walking out of Nazi Germany. Like, you know, um, like I, <laughs> something in her just said, like, people get into, like, weird absurdities when, yeah. they, when they get into groups like this, and that's what she couldn't stand, yeah. I think. Um, and to much lesser degrees, I think that characterizes nearly everyone else in the book. Like, even Joan Didion is probably the most famous, like, anti-feminist one because she wrote... She wrote something for the New York Times, um, which would make it a little bit more visible than the book. Although it was Nora Ephron in Crazy Salad has like two, well, yeah, she yeah. has the women's movement essay. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, Hers is more from a place of affection, though, I would mm-hmm. say, right? Like, Or at least understanding. Like, I really think that there's a piece about the 1972 Democratic Convention mm-hmm. with Gloria Swan and Brian and Betty Friedan saying, I hate this mother of us all business that I love. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I like that it portrays these women as human beings instead of avatars for some kind of equality that we hope to have in the future, um, uh, which seems to be devoid of human content, um, usually when it's articulated. Like, if Gloria Steinem is just like a perfect woman that we all want to be, then we're just like emptying women of content, right? Like, yeah. um, in order to be one particular kind of thing. But, um, but yeah, um, yeah, I mean, you know, Didion wrote this anti-feminist polemic and then and then about 10 years ago gave an interview where somebody asked her about it and she was like, yeah, you know what? That was about a specific moment in feminist time and it's not that moment anymore and I don't think I feel this hostile anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, which people don't usually talk about because, I don't know, people are wedded to the idea of, of Didion lately as like some kind of movement conservative, which she also wasn't. She was not good at movements. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's just it's um it's tough because uh, I probably came more out of movements than any of these people and so I can see there's like some qualifications to be made there but it does seem to be true that like when you try to get together and, and pursue a social goal as a group you end up flattening yourself a little bit it's just it's part of the work um, and sometimes that work is needed sometimes you just need to put, put on the pink pussy hat and go um, on march even if you don't really like the hat right like it's fine right but it does exist in a kind of opposition to with the work they're the work yeah. that they're doing exactly which is like it has to always be able to detach from whatever right. the thing is that everybody's doing Right, towards the end of her life, Sontag got this like, thing called the Jerusalem Prize, and there's this whole controversy, which some people here may remember because it wasn't all that long ago, about whether she should accept it or not, because, you know, Israel. Um, and, uh, and she gave a speech in which she, she, she's actually quoting a black writer that she didn't name, and I really wish I knew who it was, but it's a great phrase. A writer is not a jukebox. Um, you know, you can't just you can't just like spit it out or spit out what people need to hear at the particular time. Um, and none of these women did that very well either, um, <laughs> most of the time. Um, and when it did happen, say as in the group, which was greeted as like you know an emblem of women's liberation when it was published, I think it, that was mostly a complete surprise to Mary. Right? Like that. You know, I think she's glad for the money. Um, but the, the embrace of it was confusing for her mm-hmm. because that's not that's not what she was intending necessarily to write. Yeah. So I have one last one and then we'll go to questions. But one thing that was I I reminded me of something I was reading. Um, what you wrote about uh, one American reviewer responded to uh, Rebecca West review Portrait of the of Lady mm-hmm. um, by saying young women should not write criticism of novels because it is too hard on the novelist. <laughs> and I thought, oh, it's just like me too. Like, these <laughs> are his job. Yeah. I was like, some things just know to do. Yeah, I know, I know. Well, this idea that young women are this huge destructive force who are going to destroy all that's good in the world, you do see that sometimes, mm-hmm. actually, in the response to me. I haven't thought of it that way, but it is there, right? Like, they, they, it's sort of like this... Like, latent, don't you see what you're doing? Yeah, 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 this latent fear of the destructive ability of women when they, like, engage, and young women especially mm-hmm. for some reason. But, yeah, it's like they're defined as impertinent if they're doing that, mm-hmm. which is a very 19th century word, mm-hmm. but, um, but it is. it does seem to be that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, nothing really changes. Yeah. I mean, that's basically what you learn when you do like a, Yeah, some things change. I mean, I do think things are better. 
Because so, then he also asked why Camille Paglia was, wasn't in the book, which uh, whatever. Yeah, I'm, yeah, not, yeah. I'm not like a male urination as an arc of transcendence kind of girl, but like, um, you know, like I, um, it's also because like third wave feminism changed everything. Like this book stops when third wave feminism starts because because trying to account for, um, sounds way too Habermas, but like trying to account for the discursive atmosphere um, that happened after third wave feminism is nearly impossible mm -hmm. um, in, in the context of these women. So I just, yeah, that's so a whole that's other it. book. Yeah, that's another that's a whole other book. We'll wait, we'll wait yeah. for that one then. Um, so <laughs> I, do you guys have any questions, anybody? Um, Sontag and Hardwood were friends. Um, yeah. Sontag is really easy to see. I mean, yeah, to me, she's just out there. But Hardwood, can you can you riff on Hardwood a little bit? Because she was actually a teacher of mine, but she oh. was like the brightest person I probably have ever met. Oh, sure. But I always wondered, I didn't know if it was the southernness or what she was up to, you know, in terms of, <laughs> and I think she almost wanted anonymity. She wasn't pushing she wasn't pushing her, her mind ahead, and yet she and Sontag were really close. Yes, they were. And, um, and yeah, in the book I get into like a thing they got into with Kale too, when Kale was trying to break into the. Oh. Yeah, well, because so Sontag turns out to have been friends with Pauline Kale, of uh, friendly at least, and to have suggested her to Hardwick as a review of the group. Anyway, this is like my big discovery that is so nerdy that most people are it's like, what? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and so she had suggested to Hardwick that, that Kale would be the group for the New York Review of Books when the New York Review of Books was just like starting. And uh, and this happened so fast that Kale had to like write it in a week. She hated the book, even though she was a big fan of Mary's. Um, and so she... She wrote like a review and she handed it. She sent it in, and like a week later, she gets this note from Bob Silver saying, "Like, sorry, we're not going to publish the review. Elizabeth Hardwick's going to write to you." And Elizabeth Hardwick writes to her and says, "There's all this stuff in this review about like women um, and how she, how Mary writes about women, and I think it's essentially silly, and we don't, we're not going to publish it." Yeah. What is that? What is that about? Well, Hardwick had like this. Uh, it's funny. Hardwick's glance is not really much in the book, but um, she was married to Robert Lowell. Uh, which in and of itself, if you know anything about Lowell, is like basically evidence that she's a masochist. Because um, <laughs> he was, I, I love Lowell in many ways. Um, I like these like horrible men who were nonetheless very attracted to um, smart women, which he definitely was one of those men. Um, and so I have strong affection for him. However, I think being married to him was an extremely difficult thing. He had frequent breakdowns. He was also like a philanderer. Um, and in the end, when he leaves Hardwick, he writes like a book of poems about leaving her in which he quotes her letters, like utterly humiliating her. And I think some of that probably accounts for the desire for anonymity that she had and that the one exposure that she got was like pretty bruising. Um, although I'm very gratified by your comments in some ways because I often feel like I'm fighting an uphill battle with people to try and point out that Hardwick was not super famous in her own time in spite of the fact that she's an enormously influential writer and teacher, right? But, um, but certainly, yeah, she, she craved hiding a little bit behind some of the stuff or maybe she didn't crave it. It's hard to say because she also got into a thing with Mary about the group. She, in addition to publishing a really... So instead of Kale, they publish a really um, sexist review from Norman Mailer of the group where he calls her a dunsey broad. Um, like that's literally printed in the New York Review of Books. Um, and, um, and then they also publish a parody, which is signed by, um, I always want to say Hester Prynne, but it's Savior Prynne, um, uh, of the group. And it turns out that the person who wrote the parody is Elizabeth Hardwick. Except that she had already written to Mary saying she liked the books, so the parody was a bit confusing. Well, she <laughs> was like that, though. She she just jumped on it. I mean, she was yeah. like, she was so steeric. Yeah. I mean, and you had to be so quick to catch it. Yeah, she was, I've been told she was like, yeah, she was just very, um, cutting. Yeah, she was. Um, personally cutting. In fact, there's like a Leon Weaseltier disgrace. Um, uh, <laughs> uh, Leo here piece where he talks that after she dies, um, uh, which is worth reading in spite of the disgrace, um, that, that just says, that, that talks about like all of the mean things that she said about people over time and how everyone was frightened of her. It's worth looking up. It's online somewhere. Anyway. <laughs> Anyone else? Yes. Who's the meanest? Who's the meanest? Yeah. Probably Renata Adler. Really? 
Yeah. Really? She was combative. Well, she she was combative. What's funny is, okay, Adler is still alive um, yeah. uh, and and actually a very lovely person, which is actually pretty standard, right? Like like lying on the page, slamming person. Um, you know, she's a very nice person. So I just want to be clear that I mean in French. In French, she's definitely. Because um, Adler is actually very like probably one of the more brilliant minds, I would say, in the sense that she's extremely analytically oriented. Like if you read her early stuff, especially that is coming out of her, just like coming out of like Bryn Mawr and Harvard, um, she is destroying Norman Potteress. Like just absolutely, because she does this thing, she's been doing it since the beginning of her career, where she'll go through and count all the words that you repeat as a writer. <laughs> It's very devastating. <laughs> um, she does it with him, and and in the review, I'm thinking of she she counts the, the number of times he says something like everyone I know, I know all you know my friends, everyone I know, and she says this is not criticism, right? <laughs> um, you know, it's not criticism to say everyone I know doesn't like this book, um, or which was a bad habit of his, and so she can, and she actually later uh, in the 90s did that to the Star Report. Um, and completely dismantled it, and um, and she also, you know, more famously, um, went after Pauline Kael um, in a in a an essay that is is both extremely mean and sometimes trenchant about Kael's work, when she also does the word counting thing. Um, it's just her favorite technique, but um, but yeah, she um, she basically laid waste to Kael's and bought like large body of work. Although she does say that in the beginning she thought it was good. Um, why does everybody hate Kale? Why does everybody hate Kale? Uh, so I think it's because um, she's she's not very good at playing um, any of the party circuit, um, which is one thing. And then also she was a pretty sharp writer too, in the sense that like when she didn't like something, you certainly knew exactly how and why she didn't like it. Um, it, it's funny, that one is really complicated by the fact that male film criticism is like a whole thing, <laughs> like an edifice that they have built. Um, and from the beginning, when they were early on putting up this sort of scaffolding for this male edifice, she was like, wait a second, this doesn't make any sense. Like her famous attack on Andrew Sarris about auteur theory um, is actually mostly about what a bad writer Sarris is. Um, you know, she does have a problem with systematizing things, but um, but yeah, that made her like a, a frequent antagonist of these uh, of these men who who tended, um, not all of them, but this was definitely true in movie criticism. And there seemed to be this eagerness to professionalize it and protect it in some way by ha by making it into a specialist discipline that only certain kinds of learned people could speak. That's so true. Yeah, exactly. It is still true. And in fact, actually, one of the things is like, I, I worry all the time that I'm going to get yelled at for the Kale chapter because there's like a few things that I know that like, are triggers um, for, for some of these male critics. We're still mad at Kale, like, you know, 20 years after she died. Um, you, they're still mad um, because they feel that she, like, I don't know, maligned their honor or something. Besmirched their honor is better. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, did you have any contact with Janet Malcolm while working on the book? I did. I interviewed her. Um, and she actually ended up giving me a fact checking call about her chapter, too, which was nice. Um, yeah, she uh, she's very nice, and and I say that not because it's like it's kind of you know that sounds like I want to say something anodyne, but it's not her image. You know, <laughs> people think of her as very like scary and difficult, and I have to say when you are up, when you speak to her, she's very polite and very solicitous, and you can see exactly why people say all sorts of crazy things to her. Um, and, and, and you know, much as Didion sort of more famously wrote about this, but you know, um, Janet is it, it comes across as a very nice, unassuming woman, um, and she she is in many ways, but also that leads people to maybe walk down the path of being a little bit too loquacious with her, um, and then she uses it um, in her work. Um, and Didion used to say that too, you know, that it helped that she's sort of small. Um, I, I think a lot of people have said that. I yeah. remember reading once, like Tim Brown saying it. But a lot of people are like, people will just disclose things to you. But that actually have a lot of women too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it just, like, we come across as like weirdly warm sometimes too. It's that um, interesting thing of like, oh, you seem harmless, and then. Oh yeah, tenure. You know, then the sh the sharp thing comes. Yeah, then when you make use of the agency, people mm -hmm. are like, wait, wait, wait. wait, 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 wait. wait. 
Um, that is not that is not what I thought you were going to do. Yeah. You were so kind to me in the interview. Um, so yeah, but yeah, um, yeah. Malcolm is a really fascinating person because she's also always staging the interview. Yeah, so it's, it's interesting. What do you mean by that? Uh, just for her, um, as you can see in her work, like um, the the journalistic thing, the the um, journalism is a is a psychodrama, um, right? Where you're sort of um, always they, somebody is usually trying to get you to tell their story um, in the terms, and they think that you're just going to spit it out in the terms that they've given it to you in, and then usually as a journalist, I mean just simply by the fact that you often hear from multiple people, you end up giving back the story in a way they don't want. Um, and so she wrote a whole book about this called The Journalist and the Murderer, um, about how journalistic subjects often feel betrayed afterwards. Um, so for so she's written a lot about what it's like to interview people um, and, and, and what's going on in the interview subject's head as well as in yours. So can't help but guess that she's thinking about that when she's talking to you. When you said uh, Janet Malcolm gave you the fact check call, mm -hmm. I don't know what that, I, I know what fact checking is, but what did you mean? Oh, I just meant that she, she um, we made sure that we got everything right about her career um, with her. Um, so she was saying you got everything right. Oh, I, I, I corrected some things. She didn't want stuff yeah, right. Yeah, exactly, yeah. But he made sure that everything was good. They were all factual things. They were all things, actually, usually they were things that were set in newspaper articles that I got wrong. Uh, well, because newspaper articles also have mistakes in them, too, in spite of our current mania for fact-checking and insisting that everything that's published... Yeah, exactly. I know. People think that people... People think they were fact-checked, but they don't. Yeah, people think all journalism is fact-checked yeah. right now, and I'm not, I'm not really sure where that idea came from. Um, but yeah, so, so, yeah, so I just meant, like, yeah. Pardon me? What's that? Spotlight. Yeah, spotlight, spotlight. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that people venerate journalism enough to believe that it's like it's that, telling them yeah. the truth, but um, <laughs> that it, every word is checked. Yeah, I know, I know, but it's not usually checked six ways from Sunday yeah. unless it's a New Yorker article. But yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, and even then, I've known lots of mistakes in New Yorker articles, but yeah. Um, didn't you interview Didion at the New York Library? Oh no, that was not me. It, it was, was somebody else. That yeah. was the weirdest interview. <laughs> right. The question is, didn't I interview Didion at the New York Library? And it's like, no, I didn't speak. I, I, oh, I didn't. I, we were just talking about psychodrama. I was. I just. I mean, you have insight, and I'm just. I, I watched that. Well, I wasn't there, was so I don't think I could actually. Over. I was <laughs> yeah. just like, I couldn't believe what's going Didion on. Didion is. Didion comes across as very. Um, well, Didion is also um, just very careful about how she presents herself. I mean, I think that that comes along with being a writer in general. Um, but that can come across as yeah. As, as she seems um, cold or withholding, I've heard that a lot about people's reactions to her um, interviews. But yeah, I think I think she's in a really weird position of being a person who's written so much about her own life and yet has a sphere of privacy around a significant part of it. And I think for her, it's my guess is like that's that's a really weird thing to do when you're when you're being interviewed about like how sad you are about your husband and people try to bring up that you once wrote about like you were getting a divorce and stuff. It starts to feel a little personal. I think with Didion especially, it must be at this point very difficult. She she was not well enough or, or whatever had time to talk to me, but she, um, I think it must be difficult to be the subject of so much ad adulation, honestly, um, and so much projection um, on the part of readers. Um, most of which, I guess, if you actually are Joan Didion, you know to not be true about yourself. So, yeah. that like 
Solidarity is like an ongoing thing that we can check all the time by everything that we're doing, right? Um, and so when somebody is pointing out that the movement is, or that leaders of the movement are acting in a racist way, that's actually part of building solidarity, not tearing it down, and not creating divisions in the movement in the way that it gets talked about. Um, and we've never seemed to really get over that hurdle, even though this argument about, about the intersectionality in the movement has, has been going on for 20, 30, frankly, since, since second wave feminism, yeah. Really but people think that. it is a new thing, but it really, I think that it's been this. Well, one of the things, too, that really starts to, to worry me a little bit is like, um, many feminist writers of our age are great and I really love them. They don't tend to read a lot of history, right? Um, and you know, that just goes for like American culture or whatever and they're only representative of that. But um, but it feels like we would know that we've been having these yeah, arguments for a long time, arguments. right? Um, yeah, and, and it, it's sometimes like unfortunate. Like I always think of this actually in the context of Audre Lorde's like letter to Mary Daly. I think a lot of people read that and actually don't know who Mary Daly is, and don't read around it too to understand like what was the nature of the argument that was being had at the time. Um, and so the, the letter just gets wielded without context, and and, and to me that's just like a shame, right? Like um, not not because not because like the, the wielder of the art article is necessarily wrong in the particular argument that she's having, but because. It would be good if we knew more about this stuff, right? Like it would be good if we were having a rich. I think we would be having a richer argument. There's a it. there's a way in which I think we by by not incorporating some of the history, we keep we 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 progress at a slower pace because it's a little circular sometimes. Yeah, I mean, I've been wondering this a lot lately as we started to have arguments about like um, this is wandering off topic, but like about um you know, post me to like regime of enthusiastic consent or whatever, I often wonder if people realize that they're repeating arguments which are already made by McKinnon and Dworkin. Yeah. Um, who are, by the way, like personas non grata yeah. in, in, a, in a sort of broader sense, right? Like, um, usually... And the, what was it? Oberlin? What, what was the Oberlin, Oberlin. Oh, Antioch. Oh, Antioch. Antioch. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, um, but the enthusiastic consent arguments have been had and that we're even like reliving the Katie Reifey era. Mm -hmm. so, so, you know, like these things are just like happening and they're happening at the same sort of like 101 level, mm -hmm. um, where it seems like the conversation could be moving in a somewhat yeah. more productive direction than it yeah. currently is. Because it's true, yeah, and even like things like intersectionality, of course that's important, of course it's good. Um, it's an argument that was going on in feminism in the 70s. Like, uh, people think it wasn't, but it was, yeah. right? Um, it, it, and it's, I don't know, we could maybe learn something from it, or at least be having yeah. some second I mean, even, even stuff from the 1890s. Oh, yeah. you know, there's so different truths like existed, right? You know, and, and, and it's it's sort of like yeah, it's just it's interesting because it just keeps us at this and it, and it feels like internalized misogyny too, because it feels like we're just denying that our mothers have ever existed, existed or something. Well that's the thing, it's yeah. like there's very little claiming of the influence. Again, yeah. there's very little sort of claiming of the past. There's a way of sort of flat out rejecting it, which you know, I think you know, we miss out on some some of it. Yeah, well, I think it's because we receive the past as like the celebrity version, mm -hmm. like the the glorious Sinem's perfect version, mm -hmm. or you know, or whatever. And then people feel like, well, if I'm going to acknowledge my ancestors, that means I must be uncritically adopting every single thing they ever wrote or did in their entire career, as opposed to like you can have a model of influence where like you recognize that people are flawed, you know. But it's funny because it comes back to what you were talking about. I think that looking the, the way that we're we're having a hard time having critical arguments right now. Yeah. And um, it's interesting, like how it seems so much easier to look at this group of critics from the mid-20th century, um, maybe at a time where <coughs> they were able to have these these arguments. They were not poisoned by Twitter. And the yeah. thing, I mean, not, not that, look, I like Twitter. Twitter's done lots of things. It's also like elevated some voices into the conversation that I really appreciate, but it, it is also um, the, the, you know, it is medium as the message stuff, which is that like it encourages a mode of argument which doesn't go very deep or engage very far. Um, and it doesn't tolerate a lot of yeah dissent. I mean, it's it's interesting because like there's obviously like polar opposites on Twitter. It's just that um, the the sort of group dynamics of an argument happens so fast that it's very difficult for it to like build out into tendrils where people like you know. And there's all sorts of critical theory about this from Nancy Frazier and stuff, but about like sometimes you need like smaller groups first to discuss ideas in a more limited setting, whereas like now if you participate on Twitter, literally anybody can read what you just said mm -hmm. and like start engaging with you. And that's 
sometimes good and sometimes bad for creative ideas and creative discussions. What was the Lord Daily Exchange? I'm just really bothered by that now. The which? The other um, Lord letter. Oh yeah, the uh, Audrey Lord wrote a, wrote a letter to Mary Daly about gynecology, which is a Mary Daly is um, a feminist who is extremely difficult to describe in today's terms. I'm realizing from talking, um, but she basically had a biologically rooted um, vision of women and women's um, powers, so to speak. Um, and she wrote this book called Gynecology, and, and it was, you know, her biological vision of women's powers was mostly rooted in the experience of white women. And so Audre Lorde, like, wrote, like, a letter ex trying to explain, um, like, why the, the, she was disturbed that the book didn't incorporate the biological experiences of women who were not white. Um, so, yeah. But that was powerful. Yeah, it is very good. Anything else you guys tired? I really appreciate your coming. <laughs> in spite of Coachella. I was terrified, but yeah, because like it's so silent in Silver Lake right now. <laughs> and like all the hats are gone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, well, thank you for thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all of our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.